In the last episode, we looked at a few ways that sex and relationships have changed in China in the modern age, with all the cultural and political changes that have taken place. But let's not pretend that everyone was an angel before the intoxications of Western-style individualism came along. Indeed, some of China's most fondly remembered historical figures led lives of scandal, such as Liu Ruxu, the, quote, most respectable prostitute in Chinese history, whose paintings and calligraphy I found out about in a museum at the base of Yushan Mountain, where her tomb is. It was 1618, the late Ming Dynasty. In Jiaxiang, which is near Hangzhou, a girl was born into a peasant family. She was sold aged eight, the same age as some of the older kids in class one, to a courtesan, passed her on to an official, kept her as a concubine. In her new household, she learned painting, poetry, music and calligraphy. But when the official died, the girl, at this time just 13, went back to the courtesan and began working in a brothel. Here she became well known for her talents and intelligence, and with her poetry, Liu Ruxu began to make a name for herself. She was demanding about who her partners were, and soon became a concubine for a poet. Things were looking up. But China was in for a reckoning. For the past half-century before Liu was born, the Ming dynasty had been ruled by the Wanli Emperor. But in the second half of his reign, he became thoroughly fed up and despondent. He didn't like the bickering in the court, he didn't approve of the choice that had been made of who'd take over after him. Basically, sulked in his room, or came out to have a look at how his vast tomb was coming on. On a side note, whatever work he eventually did on the tomb wasn't enough to stop marauding Maoist teenagers breaking in in 1966 and, well surely this made sense at the time, denouncing the corpse and then setting it on fire. Go back to episode 6, Xia Jiabang, if you want to revisit some good old Red Guard action. Anyway, under the Wanli Emperor, important administrative appointments and investments weren't taking place, and a certain disorder began to creep into the running of things. When he died, the next fellow only lasted a few weeks before being killed by some medicine which was supposed to help him. Meanwhile, up north, beyond the Great Wall, in an area we call Manchuria, which wasn't part of China at that time, a man called Nuhatsu had united the Manchu factions under himself, styled himself as emperor, laid the groundworks for an invasion of China, and died. Well, that was a relief for the Ming. But things were beginning to look rather ominous for this dynasty. Back in the south, Liu Ruxu and her poet master got on fabulously. But being a beloved concubine is by definition a bad situation to be in. What about the wife? Yes, when the poet was away, his wife viciously abused Liu, and eventually she fled back to another brothel, this time taking over the management when the boss moved on. In the turmoil of the late Ming dynasty, Liu was patriotic and knew powerful men, but she could never have the power to create change like they could. She was frustrated that being a woman hindered her ability to make more of a contribution to her country. And perhaps in response to this frustration, she often played make-believe, dressing up in men's clothing. She also wrote poems where the gender of the narrator wasn't clear, and she didn't write with a feminine style of calligraphy. This is all really quite out there behaviour for the time. She even got a nickname, 
a pun on her name, Rushu, which meant Confucian scholar, implying that she was a gentleman. Now in her early twenties, seeking marriage, she dressed up in her best bloke clothes and went to see Qian Qian Yi, a poet and scholar from Changshu, my hometown in China, who was then in his late fifties. Bewitched by this cross-dressing beauty who had a way with words, the ageing poet had found himself a wife. Well, actually he'd found himself a concubine, but one who would be treated as a wife, despite this being against social mores of the time. It was Qian Qian Yi who looked after Liu's poetry, so that we know it today. But this strange fairy tale didn't end where the happy ending should be. The new Ming emperor, Chong Zhen, had been on the scene since the 1620s, but the Middle Kingdom was in a dire strait after Wan Li's half-hearted reign. The army were not well paid, and loyalties were beginning to sway. Taxes were falling harshly on all the wrong people. A huge drought came to northern China, causing untold misery. Rebellions started breaking out. And one of which was led by a man called Li Zicheng, who rampaged his way into Beijing. The Emperor Chongzhen read the runes and resolved that everyone was to commit suicide. Considering Li Zicheng's conduct towards his captives, this was probably the best of a bad bunch of options. In a grisly turn of events, the last Ming Emperor took it upon himself to kill his own daughters before hanging himself from a tree out the back. One of them, Princess Chongping, actually survived, having lost only an arm to her father's sword, and went on to become a popular character in Chinese historical drama shows. Li Zicheng installed himself as the first emperor of the here-today gone tomorrow Shun dynasty. Within a couple of months, however, some Ming forces had joined the Manchu forces from the north and saw him off. The Manchus took the throne and did it in a far more respectful manner than Li Zicheng, which meant that people generally accepted the new reality of the Manchu Qing dynasty. The Mandate of Heaven was duly passed to what would become China's final imperial dynasty. But they would spend almost 300 years at the top of the Chinese pyramid, which isn't bad going. The fallen Ming rulers were buried in the proper way, and the Ming bureaucrats were taken on by the new guys. The Qing did impose the famous pew haircut for the men, though, shaved at the front and long at the back, which was a sign of subservience to their new masters. Resistance to this humiliation was widespread, and men who didn't comply would be executed for treason. It would be 268 years before Chinese men would be able to ask the barber for a different hairstyle. As the Ming era entered its final stage, our poet heroine Liu Ruxu tried to persuade Chen Chen Yi to do the honourable thing and commit suicide. We can do it together, she said. Instead, he surrendered against her wishes. But he soon had a change of heart and they became part of the resistance in the south of China, which held out for a couple more decades. Tian put his skills to use as a minister for the southern Ming dynasty out of Nanjing, but as the Qing forces mopped up the resistance, his library was burned down. Qian Qian Yi died soon after that, leaving Liu Ruxu to fend for herself. Alone and persecuted, she hanged herself, but is immortalised as one of the, quote, eight beauties of Qinhuai, Qinhuai being a river which flows through Nanjing, China's southern capital city.
Concubines were a part of Chinese social life until the communists outlawed the practice in 1949. The fact that having multiple wives was beyond the pale, but having as many childbearing women as you could afford was fine, is one of those great historical examples of cultural cognitive dissonance. One of the most revered Westerners to take up residence in China was the British diplomat Robert Hart, who aided the Qing government in administrative reforms in the 19th century. Even he was not beyond finding use for a good concubine. He had three illegitimate children with his concubine, and then got married and had three legitimate children with his British wife. Such was the status of the illegitimate ones that, although he followed their progress as they grew up, he had no contact with them. Concubines in China walked a tightrope between incredible privilege and incredible tragedy. One of the most famous and most successful concubines was Cixi, the Empress Dowager, who effectively ruled China for 47 years during the Qing Empire's final stint. Aged just 16, she became a concubine to the Emperor Xiangfeng, and had the Emperor's only son, Tongzhi, which meant she was in line for a promotion. When the Emperor died and the boy took over, Cixi wielded the power from, quite literally, behind the curtain. Then he died of syphilis and a new emperor was installed. But Cixi liked running things, so she just kept right on at it. The new emperor, Guangxu, also had concubines, but one of them, Fei, fell out of favour with Cixi. When the Boxer Rebellion happened at the turn of the 20th century, and the Eight Nation Alliance attacked Beijing, this was covered in episode 19, Temple Tantrums, if you want to revisit that particular kick in the teeth. Well, sensing impending doom, the imperial court had to flee the forbidden city. It's not known what happened for sure, but the story goes that before departing, Cixi ordered that Fei be thrown down the well in the courtyard. The well was so narrow, the two eunuchs had to jump on her to force her down. The well is still there to this day, in the forbidden city. It's called the Well of Concubine Jen. The title of this episode is a Chinese phrase, which in Chinese goes Jing Guo Bu Rang Shu Mei, which means the headdress is no worse than the eyebrows. This headdress represents women, and eyebrows represent men, so the phrase states that the woman can outmatch the man. But as our cross-dressing poet heroine Liu Ru Xu discovered, just because there's a nice phrase about it, doesn't make it the reality in society. She's still dressed up like a man, after all. A similar thing crops up in the story of Mulan, where a young woman takes the place of her father in the army and fights admirably for many years, during which time none of her fellow soldiers realise that she's female. The story has been redone many times over the years, often reflecting contemporaneous traditions and concerns. But the legendary heroine is always taking the man's place in battle, hiding her true identity and kicking ass as she does it, teaching us all a valuable lesson when the truth is discovered. The most recent retellings of the Mulan story is, of course, those by Disney, and they unsurprisingly have happier endings than many of the old folk versions, the oldest of which goes back to the 6th century, a time when happy endings were far less likely. Case in point, Wu Zetian. While the Empress Dowager, Cixi, was the de facto leader of China for many years, the only woman to legitimately rule China was Wu Zetian, and she also rose through the ranks of the concubine system. Born in 622 into a wealthy family during the early Tang dynasty, she had a good education and was chosen as a concubine 
the Taizong Emperor. Taizong was one of China's great emperors, and the Tang is seen as the zenith of Chinese history, with the empire large and pacified, Xinjiang, which means the new frontier, coming into the orbit of Chinese territory, and the Silk Road bringing goods and ideas to and from distant places. Chang'an, which is modern-day Xi'an, was the largest city in the world, and there was a flourishing of culture most exemplified by the renowned Tang poetry. China at this time was truly the Middle Kingdom, the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world. But it was also a time of ruthless power struggles within the ruling family and their elite associates. Taizong himself had come to power after outmatching and then murdering his brothers. And then he deposed his father, the Tang Dynasty founder no less, the Gaozu Emperor. Wu Zetian was Taizong's concubine, but she also had an affair with his son and heir, Gaozong. So after Taizong died, she got promoted into that court, becoming the senior concubine and bearing a few children to the new emperor. One of these children, and this is the most notorious accusation that follows Wu Zetian around, one of those children Wu had killed, just so she could pin the blame on Gaozong's wife, Empress Wang. What really happened is an open question, because the records we have were written much later and probably had an axe to grind about female leaders. Whatever the details, though, Wu Zetian ended up replacing Wang as Gaozong's wife, and she effectively took control of matters, had the ex-wife and the biggest rival among the other concubines duly dispatched. Their arms and legs were cut off and they were drowned in a vat of wine. Gaozong wasn't a particularly healthy chap, and after a stroke left him mostly incapacitated, Wu Zetian ruled from behind the curtain. After he died, Wu made sure that her sons, the potential male heirs to the throne, were exiled or killed off, and in 690 she made it official, what everybody knew to be the case. She took on the Huangdi title and founded a new dynasty, the Second Zhou Dynasty. Although, because it wasn't to last, History still counts this time as the Tang. As I said, the Tang dynasty was the ultimate high point of Chinese history, and Wu Zetian played a part in making it so. Despite the ruthless rise to power, she was seen as a decent leader, bringing in reforms which genuinely helped people, bringing meritocracy into the system, and especially helping women who were stifled by the Confucian rules which kept them in their place. But what goes around comes around, and... Wu was eventually dethroned in a coup, although by that time she was in her 80s and pretty much ready to give up the ghost. One of the exiled sons, Zhong Zong, became emperor, although he was outmatched by his wife, who poisoned him dead in 710, who in turn was murdered not long after that, and the world just keeps on turning. The position of concubine has now been dissolved, but the imperial complex has lingered on. Spoiled boys are sometimes known as Xiao Huangdi, or Little Emperor. Why wouldn't he, why shouldn't he, have a few extra ladies milling about? Since 1980, adultery has not been legal, but it is frowned upon. When Bo Xilai was expelled from the Communist Party in 2012, see episode 31, without spitting out the bones, for that particular riches to rag story, it was noted that he had, quote, maintained improper sexual relationships with multiple women. This was probably added to his list of infringements, a long and harrowing list, to encourage people to support his untimely departure. 
but in Chongqing, where he held his last political position, they still love him. Indeed, many wouldn't care, because adultery is widespread. Businessmen have mistress secretaries, known as Xiaomi, Little Miss, and their rich wives have male escorts. Lily, the Chinese teacher in the all-girl art class who told me about biology teacher Shu a couple of episodes back, told me that many married women have lovers. She too understood it, she said, after the women at the horse-riding school she attended were seeing the instructor. People have their choices, she said, although the fool who's waiting at home while his or her spouse is bonking the neighbour doesn't seem to have much of a choice. One famous recent case centred around a car crash in spring 2015 in Changsha City, Hunan. When the injured driver's girlfriend found out about the accident, she rushed to the hospital in alarm, only to find 16 other girlfriends. 16. I was really worried when I heard that he was in hospital, said Xiaoli, who had been seeing the day's driver for 18 months. But when I started seeing more and more beautiful girls show up, I couldn't cry anymore. A rapidly changing society and the grip of a severe technology binge means that Media gossip is rife, with all the moral tutting of users bemoaning the scandals of adultery, twins born of two dads and professors' affairs with students, and the like. In a society set adrift from stable moral benchmarks, the naughty behaviour is only kept in check by the pleasure people have in berating those who get caught. And where there is judgement, there are sinners. It will often be the, quote, other woman who gets the blame. We chat... China's go-to social networking app is one of the places where videos of village mistress beatings go viral. Two women will be scrapping, or one will be forcibly cutting off the other's hair, all while a growing crowd of spectators look on, a number of whom are filming the event. Back in 1997, there was a far darker incident, I'm sorry to say. In Liaoyang, northwest China, a man was unfaithful and violent towards his wife, so she filed for divorce. He came to her work later that day, poured petrol on his wife, set her on fire. He did this in front of their son. When released on bail some time later, he went on the run, and China is a big place in which to get lost. Much more recently, China has been having its Me Too moment, and inequalities between the genders has been discussed more in public as well as domestic violence and sexual abuse. The authorities have been disinclined to allow the topic to be debated too freely. Most famously, in 2021, the professional tennis player Peng Shuai announced that she had an affair with a politician called Zhang Gaoli, a revelation that included some allegation of sexual abuse. Peng's post about it was quickly scrubbed from the internet and she disappeared, only to be seen in public after that in carefully controlled situations. This high-profile case was the culmination of growing awareness of the issue, which could be said to have had its beginnings in 2015 when five women planned a protest about sexual harassment on public transport, but were arrested before it began and locked up. The so-called Feminist Five didn't do their protest, but became an important symbol in the fight against sexual harassment, which has traditionally been seen as a private issue. The Supreme People's Court only recognised sexual harassment as something that could be dealt with through the law in 2018. Also in 2018, a woman with the pen name Xianzi accused the CCTV host Zhu Jun of assaulting her four years earlier 
while she was an intern at the network. CCTV is China's central television, a government-controlled TV network which is everywhere in China, putting out a range of programs, but most importantly making sure the party's version of reality reaches all corners of the country. Zhu Jun was a big player in the network, regularly hosting the Chinese New Year gala that everybody watches. That's a big name, like Ant and Deck combined, with Graham Norton on top, you'll excuse the image. Just as they would for the politician the Peng Shuai named, the establishment closed ranks around Zhu Jun, and Xian Zi's accusation didn't become a turning point for positive change. Zhu was, after all, part of Xi Jinping's media campaign of positive energy. They could hardly allow someone like that to become tarnished. News articles and interviews were deleted, and the media stopped reporting sexual harassment cases, especially ones with high-profile figures. With typical creativity, though, netizens struggling to talk openly online about sexual misconduct referred to the topic as rice bunny. In Chinese, rice is mi, and bunny is tu. So that's me too. Get it? The issue could well have died out there, except that Zhu Jun decided to sue Xianza for defamation and the story picked up once again. And with that, other high-profile cases popped up. Of businessmen and professors involved in sexual abuse over those whom they have leverage. Despite efforts, the powers that be seem unable to fully put this one back in its box. But Xianzi's take on this is that the stories are circulated because they make good copy, and the public have a taste for the sensationalist details. In response to Me Too becoming a force in China, so too have the men's rights groups that oppose them, and the familiar line that activists are being used by sinister forces from abroad has been levelled at Xianzi. When Zhu Jun sued her for defamation, she just went and sued him right back starting a landmark sexual harassment case which the court ultimately threw out in late 2021, having rejected certain evidence and then ruling that there was insufficient evidence. Even more than most of the topics that we explore in this podcast, I wanted to get a take from someone on the ground, living within the system. So I caught up once again with Andrea, who previously told us about the frustrations of enduring the airtight Shanghai lockdown in April 2022. She's in her 20s, just beginning a professional career in Shanghai. She started by telling me how the situation for women has changed since her mother's and grandmother's generation. I think things have changed a lot since their generations. First of all, Nowadays, more and more women are well-educated and get the opportunities and support from people around them to study further. However, back to my mom and even my grandma's generation, many of them didn't even have the mindset of going to school. Their main mission was to take family responsibilities as much as possible, including doing farming work to help her family survive, So my grandma has never been to your workplace, an actual workplace. The farm and the home are her workplace. But my mom, she has had few jobs in her life. But still, many of them spend more time in family. Of course, they feel tired. They complain as well. But they still think this is not unusual. So that brings me to the marriage topic. Full of inequality and men chauvinist. 
and too much self-sacrifice, and not enough appreciation from others. But their marriages are also very simple. No one would ask for a big house, or a car, or jewelry, or dowry. Only one paper is enough. But look at modern marriage, full of calculations: who to pay for the house, who to buy the car, how much dowry can be acceptable, who to pay for the wedding ceremony, who to pay for the wedding meals. People can break up or divorce sometimes because of these reasons, and also young people are more. Open to the concept of divorce, but my mom and my grandma are not really okay with that, for sure. Then, whether it's different for women in the modern workplace and in positions of leadership, I think people think women are too emotional to make right decisions, so they don't fit to the leadership positions. Women's efforts are always easily devaluated. And it's very hard for them to apply for a valuable, critical project in the company. Still, not get paid equally for equal work, and recruiters still care a lot about marriage stats and children's stats because they make a default assumption that women absolutely will take all the family responsibilities. I do hear from some female friends too that the powerful men they met are、um, pretty bossy. And can be quite arrogant too. They just don't listen to ladies, and they prefer to assign the challenging pieces of work to the male staff, but only assign、um, the less important pieces of work to the female staff. So it sounds to me, in those men's mind, men are more reliable and capable than women. She explained how there's a lot of different voices you can hear as a woman. I mean, you can always hear a lot of different voices.、Um, don't be too fat. Don't be too slim. Don't put this much makeup on. Please put some makeup on. You are so short. You are too tall. Always, always, a lot of different voices you can hear. But in this aspect, I do think that people now are more and more open to different styles. Even my grandma, she can also accept that I have a different hair color. So,、um, so yeah, this one is not that bad, I think. So it sounds like there's been some progress, at least. I would say yes, absolutely. Compared to the past forty or fifty years, yes, things are much more equal now. But we're still so far away from getting there. So the amount of family responsibilities people put on women's shoulder absolutely need to be changed, including how many children they want to give birth to, because that's their bodies, not other people's bodies.、Um, also, give women the freedom to choose whether they want to date forever but no marriage, or they want to get married, or they don't want. Either dates or marriages don't give the mission to women that their duty to this world is to marry good men and have babies. And of course, the most important thing, instead of women changing, growing, and developing, is to think about what Chinese society can do to change men's mindsets. How to let men grow and develop too. If only women are moving forward, but men are not moving, or even moving backwards, this is going to be a disaster.
Thank you for your thoughts, Andrea. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I take a trip to the biology department, and there's a new guy in town.